politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, our liberty, our property, to fight for the issues that matter in the way they matter at the time they matter. If you're looking for all that, well, there's only one place to go, one destination, see our podcast, your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today for the end of the week. Uh, it is the 2nd of December, and we've had a lot of terrific guests this week, so... There's a lot of other things I wanted to cover. We're going to fly solo today. Um, Ron Johnson at the cancels. We're going to have the senator on hopefully Monday. Uh, but folks, you, you tune into other so-called conservative influencers. And you know what I mean. Pick your list of the top 30 or so uh, podcasts, radio shows, columnists. Maybe some of them are elected officials. And what are you hearing? Kanye West, Kanye West. You'll hear, oh, we need to find a way to win the presidential election. Oh, the Georgia runoff, ballot harvesting. What are we going to do? And then even the few that broach the GOP treachery be like, yeah, they're kind of weak, the GOP. It's getting tiresome. And then within two days, they're going to go back to regular programming, carrying water for the very controlled opposition that has subverted us for three, four decades. And nobody is trying to give some sort of vision of doing something different. Doing something different. There is such a void of leadership. And in many respects, the Kanye thing is a reflection of that. It's a reflection of the fact that there's no serious thinkers, no serious doers, no selfless people that rather than just trying to make millions of dollars in media and conservative media, hearing themselves talk, uh, watching themselves on cable to actually do something good for civilization. So anytime you have a punk pop culture guy that goes off the left left's reservation and says one thing we agree with, they like embrace the guy as if he's the second coming. And then they get disappointed when they find out, well, he's nothing but the punk rapper you always knew he was. And that's what it was. I mean, let's not forget that Kanye came to life under Trump, when he got Trump three weeks after he said the drug dealers deserve the death penalty to let out the worst gangbangers and drug traffickers ever, more than Obama ever did. And all of conservative think tanks and media cheered that on, except for me. So yeah, I mean, that's what you get. You bring in the snake, you get bitten. By the way, it is kind of interesting that they finally discovered, yeah, you know, anti-Semitism is not just from traditional white supremacists. It's also from, there's a whole lot, a lot of that in the black rap scene. And it's only because Kanye went off the reservation on one or two issues that the media even focused on that. But the dirty little secret is that there's plenty of respected black political leaders, uh, certainly on the left, but also that Republicans embrace or at least kiss up to. Um, BLM being at the top of that agenda that literally believe in the same thing. But there you go. There you go. So that's what their focus is. And it's the same lack of leadership that is driving all these people to either be on the wrong side or silent in the omnibus fight, the gay marriage fight, and the Kevin McCarthy fight. And the focus on state legislatures and the focus on the next gubernatorial elections, which, you know, the cycle is coming up. 
In other words, on the issues they could actually influence at the time they matter and the way they matter, they're, they're nowhere to be seen. And this is that void of leadership that we need to create a new movement to somehow fill. If you had these guys do what I do, you would have a different movement and a different country. But they don't. It's time they lead or get out of the way. Stop filling the void. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the way one of the mechanisms of action of ivermectin is that it, it blocks certain pathways by filling it so the virus can't get in. And that's what a controlled opposition is. These top kind of Fox News type of people, they fill that void of a market for, you know, to oppose the Democrats just enough to block out voices such as mine and similar people that will actually do something about it. And their biggest idolatry, as I mentioned yesterday, is but the Democrats, but the Democrats. What, what they're, the illusion that they create is they say for 30, 40 years, if we don't elect Republicans this time, we're going to be dead. And then lo and behold, the Democrats win. Or sometimes the Republicans win, and under their stewardship, even worse things happen. Either, but, but both have happened the last couple decades. So we are dead. We're dead 10 times over. It's not like, oh, if we, if we don't block the Democrats on this now, we'll be dead. No, no, no. Right now, we are thrown in a dungeon, and we're sentenced to death. If nothing changes, the demographics, the family structure, the, the stuff they're going to do to our life, liberty, property, the stuff they're going to do to our mind, poisoning our bodies. I mean, now that we know everything they did with the vaccines, God knows what they've done with food. I mean, I think we already kind of have an idea. These are existential issues that they don't have an answer for. It's like another day at the at the picnic. They they're just enjoying swimming in the waters of politics, of media, being famous, making millions of dollars. Maybe it's a good thing I don't earn that much money, so I don't particularly enjoy this outside of any satisfaction of making a difference. So the minute I don't feel like I'm making a difference, it's worthless. It's worthless. But we're in that dungeon. And the Republican Party is the equivalent of holding a feather. And they won't let go of that feather. I'm scared. If I, if I, if I let go of that feather, we're going to be stuck in the dungeon. Well, you're in the dungeon. you got to put it down to pick up a new tool and start digging your way. Dig a tunnel and get out of it. Start making an innovative play to evacuate yourself from that morass. Because if you don't do it, it's over with anyway. And my analogy is not even apt anyway because it's worse than that. A feather is just nothing. It, the, the GOP actually harms us more than having nothing. So that's why they artfully, Kevin McCarthy crafted this brilliant strategy where he got Don Bacon, this rhino from the Omaha, Nebraska area, to go and, and warn like, hey, you know, if these uh, Freedom Caucus guys go and try to create multiple ballots, stop McCarthy on January 3rd from being a speaker, well, we're, we might have to cut a deal with the Democrats. It's never going to happen anyway. I don't care if it did, first of all. It wouldn't change anything. But it's never going to happen. It didn't happen under Boehner when they kicked out Boehner. Um, the dynamics just aren't there. But they're making that as the excuse. And that's what they... He See, Kevin McCarthy, and this is all the more so why he needs to go, 
is he is a brilliant tactical player with conservative media. He knows that the kryptonite of conservative media is, but the Democrats, right? It's the same thing. Why, no matter the betrayal, they'll get Republican voters to vote for every piece of garbage Republican on the ballot. So it's the same thing here with the speaker's race. The public doesn't vote. Republican voters don't vote, but the Republican House members vote. Say, well, if, if you don't elect McCarthy, there's a risk they could cut a deal with the Democrats. And then they're all falling for it now. That is the kryptonite that we need to break. How bad do things need to get? Think, did, did you think about this? Gay marriage, at, at, especially at a time like this, one of the most fundamental issues. Two members of House leadership voted for it. You know that. Tom Emmer, who's now the whip or incoming whip, and Elise Stefanik, the conference chair. And again, Scalise and McCarthy, the one and two, aren't bothered by it, even though they voted no, and especially the number one. McCarthy literally supports it. Remember uh, that Fox News loser is his roommate. I'll say nothing further. But my point is, they are as subversive as possible. It's like these conservatives, once in a while, the better elements are like, yeah, we're really getting screwed by these Republicans. It's like, dude, I've been saying that my entire career. We've had these cathartic moments that your eyes can't unsee what you see, your ears can't unhear what you hear, literally watching them in bed with your opponents, and then you just walk on, continue carrying water for them the next day without any other strategy of what to do. That is the failure. And my point is, lead or get out of the way. We don't have time for this crap. All of them, they're, a they're just a bunch of loser frauds. Part of the problem is, a lot of them are not willing to learn new concepts. They're lazy. So they, they revert back to this muscle memory. Ah, but the Democrats focus on the same things. You know, big shout out to Glenn Beck. He's one of the original names, kind of the earlier era of conservative radio. And he's been having me on his show a lot. He's taken interest in, in what I'm doing. He's taken interest in Whitney Webb and her message of transhumanism. I, I, I've heard that was like his most downloaded interview in years. The one with Whitney Webb. So kudos to him for showing a maturity of willing to learn even later in life, even you know from a generation above me. And that's a problem with a lot of these guys. That they're only in these positions because when the conservative media sphere was much smaller, kind of before the internet and certainly social media, so they had those spots, so they retained those audiences, especially among baby boomers. Uh, you know, to this day. But they're worthless, utterly worthless. I mean, the Hannity's of the world, these people, and on down. It's got to change. The things they should be focusing on now, this is tiering 50-50. The budget battle is everything. You need a budget deadline with Republicans in control of the House looming over them every time they promote stuff, the tranny agenda, the medical fascism agenda, the FBI going after people. You need to have that potential to have that fight. 
And Kevin McCarthy is playing this game where he's meeting with McConnell and Schumer and, and Biden, and he just doesn't say anything. They should all be calling on McCarthy, especially those who support him for a speaker, to hold a press conference and call on McConnell to whip against an omnibus bill and, and uh, you know, end his support for it. Notice he won't do that. Notice he won't do that because he supports it. Same reason he didn't whip against the gay marriage bill. He didn't whip against a lot of bad things. And heck, the new whip, the one counting the votes, supports all this stuff. Is the co-sponsor of the big tech India-China visa giveaway bill and is a co-sponsor or, or, or a supporter of gay marriage. You can't go on like this. It's like everyone's focused on the Georgia runoff. And I, I think now they've lost interest because they know the Republicans going to lose. But Herschel Walker, what does he even stand for? Do you even know what he's running on? You just have a miserable character. I'm sorry if it insults people. Yeah, I know Warnock is just as bad. We get that. But it's like, really? There's one thing if we had a bad character, but at least he'll deliver the goods on the issues. Does it really matter? And I don't mean just because he'll, he'll, he'll still be the minority even if he wins. Let's say he would be the 51st seat. He's not the 51st seat. Let's say he would be on par with, you know, Ron Johnson or Ted Cruz or, or you know, Holly Lee, someone like that. Would it even matter? No. Of course it wouldn't matter. They already have a 90-10 majority. This is what they miss. Because they've been leading us astray for years, we don't have a visionary. Someone like Rush in the late 80s, early 90s, that I think really led to that 94 revolution that could have been very auspicious, but it fell apart. That was kind of the last opportunity, maybe 2010 you could say. We don't have a visionary like that anymore. You know, later on in his life also, he kind of, got more involved in the razzle-dazzle of politics. But think of that. We don't have that. And, and all the people have an audience to do it, even the ones that kind of start with it, they, they, they don't, there's no follow-up. They might do one show on the omnibus bill or, oh, yeah, McCarthy's kind of a loser, but then move on. And that's the thing. No one's thinking about. He, he, here, here's one thing. That everyone should be doing. So, so number one action item is obviously the omnibus bill. So if you block that, you have this looming. And again, I don't I don't even care about the federal stuff anymore. It's it's long gone. It's 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 lost. The only reason is because it's a messaging tool. If you had a budget fight, then it would it would coincide. Let's say you'd have the deadline, I don't know, March 1st. That's right in the thick of the legislative sessions in the red state legislatures. And that's when you like, we have a budget fight over. We will not fund a bill with, you know, tranny surgery and, and COVID mandates and funding Pfizer and the FBI and the IRS, CDC. And then you have this kind of logjam, but then while that's going on, state after state would start banning castration, banning drag shows, banning Pfizer, banning mandates, medical freedom agenda. They work synergistically together. But then there's also the gubernatorial races. I'm the only one, I mean, Kentucky, beautiful opportunity there. They have three to one, four to one majorities in, in, in the legislature. There happens to be a Democrat governor. He's up. Next year, the Republican primary is already in May. 
You have a bunch of Rhino McConnell people splitting the vote. So it's a good opportunity. And Savannah Maddox, we had her on the show, the most conservative woman in the legislature. She's running. She's like a female version of Thomas Massey. I'm the only one promoting her. Like, what the heck? This is a red state where you have a lot of influence. Use it. Louisiana governor's race is coming up. Mississippi governor's race. And then even 2024, the cycle is getting started. Let me just give you a list of the states that are up that are solid red states. Indiana, Missouri, Montana. New Hampshire, I wouldn't say is solid, but you know they have held the governorship for many years, so it's certainly winnable. North Carolina, North Dakota, Utah, and West Virginia. That's a lot of states, potentially, you can get in another DeSantis. Yet, if you don't get involved, West Virginia. We have Moore Capito. Shelley Moore Capito, the pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, pro-big spending, pro-open borders, leftist from the pits of hell, her son, who's the Judiciary Committee chair in the state house there who sucks, he's running for governor, and then the existing Rhino governor, Jim Justice, wants to run for Senate against Manchin. And the irony is, part of the reason why Manchin has been able to hold on with his double game for so many years is because he doesn't stand out like a sore thumb. If you had, let's say, uh, uh, you know, at least a Rand Paul or a Hawley or a Ron Johnson, he would stand out. But you have Shelley Moore Capito. So they're literally the same. I mean, he's no more liberal than she is. But no one's focusing on that. That West Virginia, you have 88 to 12 majority in the House. I forget the Senate, something like 30 to 4 or something. But you have Jim Justice as governor, who is more rabidly pro-Pfizer than Biden is. COVID fascist par excellence. Leftist on every single issue, except maybe like a couple of taxes or something. And fake pro-gun stuff. And then obviously he has his acolytes like more capital in the legislature that are like him. So we're neutered. It may as well be California. Fine, he's finally term limited out. So we have an opportunity? No, even an open seat. We can't get anything. Because there's no initiative to switch for everyone to join me to pressure and build a movement to switch to caucuses and conventions. And then also just to bang away. If Tucker, Laura, Sean, Levin, all these people on down would say... West Virginia is a solid red state. More capito is unacceptable. That would, that, that would change things very quickly. But if you don't have a critical mass of attention on it, it reverts to muscle memory. And that's money and name ID. And the more capito is how I have all the money and name ID, you're never going to beat the guy. You will never beat him in a, in, a, in a primary, in a popular primary. So it's not even like we can look towards the future and say, all right, at least henceforth, we should win. You know, all the incumbents are impossible to get out in a primary, but all the open seats in solid red states, we should win. No, I can't tell you that. It's getting a little bit better. County, school board, state house maybe, but it's still hard for state senate and certainly statewide races. There's a couple of prospects like Chuck Gray in four years from now, maybe he could be governor, but we'll be dead by then. No one has an answer for this. I'm the only one doing this, and it's really frustrating. But this, this business of like, oh, 
but the Democrats. You gotta let go of that. I used to be that way before I got married when I was still living at home, kind of during those Bush years, the second term. My father was like, there's not a dime's worth of difference, you know, between the parties. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. We can't allow Pelosi. Imagine if Pelosi were to win. This was before the first time she was speaker, like 05, 06, going into the 06 election. And we're now suffering, even though Republicans control government half the time, we're suffering worse than we could have ever imagined. What are we going to do about that? And he was right back then. He was an early supporter of uh, Ross Perot. And that's the thing. We've been trying since 92. Since Reagan left, we didn't have any leadership. And even when he was there, I mean, the party was always broken. But there was nobody at the top since then. Think about it. Everyone who's been a leader in the party, if you go back, if you go back in time to any Republican presidential nominee, Senate majority leader, speaker, you know, big governors, they're not just rhinos, they're literally with the Democrats now. That's how subversive they were. Trent Lott, for years, he was the Senate majority leader for Republicans. He he's he's promoting gay marriage, everything on down from there. Who was the speaker before Boehner, who himself is a left? The media is saying Boehner should be speaker. He could get a governing coalition between him and the Democrats. But he was regarded as the conservative hero of the 2010 election. And the whole time he was a Democrat. Before that, you had Dennis Hastert, a child molester. We had Who did we have for nominees? The Bushes, Dole, McCain, Romney. Literally leftists, literally Democrats. How do you not see this? And yet we're going to keep doing this. It will not change until, I, until we have leadership teaching the Republican voters this, that at some point you have to let go and focus on something new. And, and I've been showing you how it doesn't fully require, and certainly not immediately, the creation of a new political party. Between changing the primaries between just focusing more on the issues and holding them on a short leash rather than focusing on the Democrats, focus your influence and attention on the Republicans and the issues and creating red lines and, and creating the environment to sow that disquiet among the Republican voters. And then when it makes sense to run independent candidates, because again, folks, a lot of these states, you can't win anyway with the current Republican message. The biggest message from this election is that the polls were wrong and independence swung to Democrats. The Republican brand is trash with them. So what do we need it anyway? It just weighs us down. It weighs down our messaging. You got to learn new tricks. And I want to get to one of these tactics, one of these movements. Notice I'm not a one-trick pony. There's many things I want to push at once. And I'm going to talk about one important one today. But first, I just want to put an exclamation mark on this um, by going through the difference between supporting your position and your interests. Positions and interests. Uh, my buddy Russ Vogt, who's helping lead the fight against McCarthy from the outside, he was Trump's OMB director, like one of the few good people he had in his cabinet. 
So there's this guy, Bill Hennessy, H-E-N-N-E-S-S-Y. He has a substack or, or uh, no, a website, HennessyReview.com. He has an article from 2014. He said, Russ sent this to me. Might have tweeted it out. From 2014, back when, during the Boehner days, when the Republican House was always making excuses, lowering the expectations, we can't do this, and a lot of conservative media would be, yeah, the Republicans can't do it, they need to win more elections, but the Democrats. So he, he gave a whole thing, a whole very important piece, four steps to, to negotiating with a politician. It's, a, it's worth your time to read the whole thing. It, it talks about, it's the whole subterfuge of how they create low expectations and, oh, we can't do this and all the ways conservative media covers for them. But he has an important point. Know your positions and your interests and let go of your positions. It's very important. Politicians excel at separating you from your interests by focusing on your positions. Most people have no idea what the difference is. If you want to win a negotiation with a politician or anyone else, you need to know this key distinction. And you need to lose your emotional attachment to your position. A position is very specific and immediate. I want an ice cream cone. I want to defeat Ann Wagner. Whatever, that's just, uh, he's from Missouri. It's a congresswoman from Missouri. Your interest, though, is the result that you want for yourself. The result that you want. It's why you think you need your position. Let's use a career example, which is more familiar to many than political negotiations. And he says here, I'm going to give you an example of your position. You want a management job and a six-figure salary. You work like a dog, build your case, brush up your resume, and land the management job for 120000 a year. Then you find yourself working 80 hours a week. You're on the road half the time, and you're warring with your family and your coworkers all the time. Your boss tells you to cut your staff by 20%, which means you have to fire five good people so the shareholders can pocket extra cash before some tax increase takes effect. You got your coveted position, but you're not happy. Your position wasn't aligned to your interest. And then he says, your interest. You wanted the title and that salary. Why? Because you wanted status and money. That's your why. You wanted money and status so you could do more for your family or maybe treat your friends to a drink now and then or take your kids on a vacation or just feel successful. Again, what did you want? What was your interest? You wanted to be happy, healthy, respected, not tired, miserable, and despised. And I, I think that's a brilliant distinction. And this is what conservative talk radio, what the conservative movement, and you know, carrying water for the Republican Party has done to us for 40 freaking years. Oh, you, you, you want fighting the FBI, the IRS? Oh, here's fighting the FBI, IRS. Oh, you want pro-life? Here's pro-life. Oh, we're, we're uh, against inflation, crime. They'll, they'll superficially touch on their interests, uh, on, our, on our positions, our issue positions. Oh, you want more Republicans to win? Here, here's the Republicans. But then somehow we find ourselves utterly miserable. We're worse off than ever before. And you're like, wait, how did, how did that happen? And that's how I feel. You see, these guys love the position. They love having a voice. They love having an audience that listens to them. They love the money they make. But I'm not like that. I focus on interests, on results, I'm thankful to all of you that I get to get before a microphone and speak the truth and it's appreciated and I could at least earn a bare bones living to support my family, nothing more but enough that I don't have to pander or do anything 
And I'm very thankful for that. But I'm miserable in terms of the outcomes. At some point, you have to realize that what we're doing is not working. It's counterproductive. I thought that was a beautiful analogy that Bill gave there. Again, it's a piece from 2014. Four Steps to Negotiating with a Politician, Bill Hennessy. And it's a similar thing with all this dogmatic support behind certain like strategies. Like, you always have to support business, business, or abortion, or tax cuts, the same issues, the same things. They fall in love with this nostalgia of the same ways of doing things rather than falling in love with your outcomes, your principles, not as like dogmatic about a certain strategic approach, but an outcome, an outcome, an outcome. You need results. And we're worse off than we've ever been. They're attached to the same things. Oh, yeah, but the Democrats, uh, the next election, the next election. Try something new. And with that, I want to talk about something new. One of the five to ten strategies we're going to be pushing. And that is let my people go. To redraw state boundaries. To start agitating for the red parts of blue states. To break away. Areas where you have contiguous geographical and demographical areas that span a wide swath of land that are not just like lean red, but solid red. Very different from the urban centers of these states that control things. To push and agitate. Let my people go. And these boundaries need to break away. And that is the building block to national divorce, which is the only thing that will ever help and the thing that we ultimately need. Now, on the surface, some of you might be wondering, well, Daniel, we're not even being successful in making the red states red. And you're now worried about somehow the red areas within blue states that we don't have, we don't even, I mean, even Republicans don't control the legislature. So what are you going to do? But I believe this is an important movement for several reasons. For several reasons. I talk about this because there's been a lot of success. The Greater Idaho Movement being the 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 most in Eastern Oregon. Two more counties voted on November 7th to, uh, to explore joining Idaho. It's now up to 11 of the 15 easternmost counties representing about two-thirds of the landmass of the state. And... The reason why it's so important is, number one, is anything that sows disquiet in the current system upends the current system. Remember, the current system is the problem. We are locked in a dungeon. You can't be conservative and conserve a status quo. You need to fight like the Dickens to to evacuate yourself from it. So anything that will accentuate the divide, we are irrevocably divided. We need to separate. We need to separate. That needs to be the message. That helps no matter what. Number two, it's a tide that will lift the red states. Because part of the problem is we still have trouble getting people lit and activated and red-pilled in the red states because they think they have Republicans in charge already. Whereas the ones in the blue states, it's only certain states where this geographically makes sense, but you don't need that many to, to create this environment they are like pulling their hair out. And 
this last election was beautiful. Like, you know, there was there was talk of you know this being a repeat of 1994, 2010, so they'll win even in blue states. There was talk they'd get the governorship in Oregon, um, New York, Michigan, right? Maybe even win the Senate in Washington State, and, and obviously the exact opposite wound up ha- happening. And now they realize, and I was scared because like in Oregon, that governor, that Republican was a rhino beyond belief. Wouldn't have solved anything. They wouldn't have had the legislature anyway. And it would have just forestalled this plan. Now they realize, oh my gosh, we had the best of environments. We will never, ever win that state. And that's why it's going to be great for the greater Idaho movement. And that will help make, um, make, make this a reality. Now, like everything else, it seems impossible on the surface. But I'll tell you, in Idaho, on the Idaho side, we have, obviously, you do have to get the Oregon government on board with it. But on the Idaho side, the chairwoman who's in charge of that committee that would, you know, I guess, vote out to the floor some sort of state compact. Basically, just the process is, if states want to redraw both legislatures have to approve it with a compact that they work together to um, uh, agree to an arrangement. And then you would petition uh, to Congress to um, basically, you know, they would have to readmit their states based on new boundaries under Article 4, Section 3, Clause 1 of the Constitution. But again, my point isn't even getting to that outcome. It's bringing it to the brink. Right now, part of the problem is even the Republican, the the voters are approving these resolutions, these 11 of the 15 counties. But even like the state legislators from those areas, they're not like pushing it strongly. I do hear and I can't mention the person. There is someone now in the legislature who is going to bring a, a, a resolution for a compact to the legislature. But imagine if you had the power of all these counties saying, I don't want to be a part of you. We are not going to enforce this stuff here. We don't, we're don't. we different. Let us go. It, people would be very sympathetic to it. Not so much the Democrat politicians, but the Democrat voters, because they feel the same way. They think the people in Portland think Eastern Oregon is a bunch of rednecks. They don't want to have anything to do with them. Fine. Great. And imagine you multiply this by upstate New York versus the city. The panhandle of Maryland going to um, West Virginia. The you know the whole downstate of Illinois going to Missouri or something like that. That in itself would accentuate it and draw more attention to localism, autonomy, breaking away. We're irrevocably divided because we are. Right now, we are suffering from the divide, but we're not getting any of the benefits because we have a controlled opposition not speaking out for us. I think it's a very important movement. And our founders would support this. You know, I have some, I want to share with you just some numbers to accentuate, to to, uh, draw attention to just how disenfranchised we are as a people. Even a small state like Oregon, small state, four and a half million people, is larger than the population of the entire country when George Washington was sworn in in 1789. Okay? I think it was like 3.8 million or something, and what's Oregon's like 4.6 million? So it's bigger. 
So it's easily the size of the entire country. And when we had the entire country, they didn't want a direct popular vote. They wanted an electoral college. They understood that direct democracy, that, that there's problems with majoritarian rule. Now, obviously, on some level, you always do have to have some degree of majoritarian rule. Now, first of all, it's protected by minority rights, a constitution. Certain individual rights cannot be broached by the majority. But even in terms of just the policymaking, they understood that, yes, at some point, majority has to win, but it has to be filtered in a way that it's broadly representative of a of the landmass. So what they didn't want was where you know, you could have a scenario where basically, and, and this is what we wind up, wound up having today, where you have one or two or three counties that are very heavy populated, uh, homogenous, monolithic thinking, groupthink by big cities, and they overpower the country. So you have broad swaths that are 80-20 the other way, but they get just enough 80-20 in their areas that what so now they can govern the entire rest of the place miles upon miles away culturally different historically different geographically demographically different and completely rule over them and that's why they wanted the electoral college that would at least create a little bit more of a of a sampling and i believe if they were around today in the states they would do the same thing and have some sort of a Dish, meaning, like, rather than voting popular vote, winner take all, it would be something like an electoral college within the state for governor. So let's say it would be the um, the state legislative districts would be would get a vote, the equivalent of that at federal level. But now I think we just need to break away. And let me give you a great example. Picture a state like Oregon. Oregon is not even a swing state. It's an extremely blue state. Extremely blue state. But yet you look at the gubernatorial election. It wound up, you know, the Republican did overperform. Now she's a rhino, but the people didn't vote for a rhino-ness. I think the people who voted for Republican wanted the Republican. It was close, but the Democrats still won. It wasn't a hairline. The Democrat won by a respectable 3.6 point margin. So that's a pretty solid... It's not just like one vote. That's a pretty solid margin of victory. But here's the deal. Democrat Tina Kotek lost 29 of 36 counties. 29 of 36 counties. And and moreover, there's an entire wall of... It's not just like it's interspersed. If you look at the map, there's a wall of 18 counties contiguously in the eastern two-thirds of the landmass of the state that not only voted for the Republican, but in most of those counties voted for the Republican by anywhere from a 30 to a 50-point margin. So it's not just like, okay, you know, she won those big urban counties around Portland and Eugene by a ton, and then, you know, the Republican won the rest by 52-48. No. It's so solidly different. So... Yes, it is a valid thing that the big cities do have the most people, and a lot of these counties have very few people in it. That is true. But it's only but you can only take that argument so far. Yes, you always have if you have a couple counties like that, a couple areas, look, you gotta bite the bullet or, or move away. Move to a red state. 
But if you have such large, contiguous swaths of areas, the counties do matter. They have their own history, their own culture, their own geography. Why should they be governed so distantly by that monolithic business? If you add the five southwesternmost counties in Oregon, you get a mass of, con- of a contiguous state of 23 counties all voting overwhelmingly red. Again, the Republicans are false, but I'm talking about the intentions of the voters in voting for them. It's very interesting. If you look at Kotek, the Democrats' margin of victory, the margin was 68,000 votes. It comes exclusively from the 192,000 net margin she got it, she, she, she got, <laughs> she netted in Multoma County. That's Portland. Just that what meaning, in other words, in other words, think about this. If you would just take out that one county, one county out of 36, just take it out. And include the rest of the liberal counties. There's a few more. Eugene, Oregon, very, very liberal. Still still be in there. The Republican would have won by eight points. That's the point. You can't have it that polarized of that much land, that distant, that contiguous, that radically divergent, and they get their margin from one freaking county. I understand majority has to matter at some point. But if it's that polarized, you got to subdivide the state then. You know, again, you're always going to have, even within certain areas, you'll have, well, okay, this county didn't vote for it. Okay, but you can't accommodate that if you want to have a state. We, we get that. But you reach a point. Like, let me give you an example. The Midwest, this might change, but as of now, the Midwest is very different. Like, you can't point to the same things in Wisconsin and Michigan. Because you do have large swaths upstate that are red, but you have interspersed a lot of blue counties too, not just in Detroit, for example. You have a lot of different areas, the whole greater Lansing area, but other areas as well. But you go to Oregon, it's an entire wall. Let my people go. It should be obvious. You have San Francisco in one corner of the state and Alabama is the rest of the state. It makes no sense. We need to be making that argument. And again, if all the major talk show hosts would take up the cause of greater Idaho like I have, and the Idaho legislature is very sympathetic to it, I don't know if ultimately the Oregon legislature would agree to it, but it would force some sort of resolution. And then imagine if you had multiple areas doing this at once. Multiple areas. So think about... um, you got uh you got Illinois. Illinois is another um or, or you know what you know let, let's let's first move on to Washington State. Washington State's even better, an even starker example. Patty Murray, let's go to the Senate race. Patty Murray defeated Republican Tiffany Smiley by a 14.6 margin. That's a landslide. So it's not even a, not, not, not even like Oregon was somewhat close. I mean, total landslide. So you say, yeah, they easily deserve. I mean, you can't, Daniel, you can't, you can't, you know, begrudge her of that victory. And that's true. Very strong victory. But just to show you how unfair these boundaries are, how it makes no sense, is even while winning the state, 
by a margin of 14.6 points. Patty Murray still lost 28 of the 39 counties. Okay, 28 of the 39. It's not just, okay, you still you won by a landslide, but, you know, lost, um, you know, a little bit more of the counties. No, she lost three quarters of the counties. And even of the 11, Murray only won landslides in a few of those counties. A lot of them were pretty close, and with a stronger year, stronger Republican Party, stronger movement, could have flipped those states. Because a lot of what you have in states like Washington and California is this exaggerated effect, where there's areas that if you had a competitive party, they would be they would actually remain red. It's just that kind of the bottom has fallen out from under the party. The party is feckless, so Democrats are winning areas they shouldn't be winning. She won, Patty Murray, that is, by a net of 442,000 votes. That was her margin of victory. Did you know that that entire margin comes from Kings County, Seattle? So meaning, if you took out just Kings County, just Kings County, and you, even if you include Olympia, Vancouver, the other liberal areas, and there are many, Smiley would have carried the state narrowly. But certainly you take out the eastern two-thirds of the state, and it's like she wins in a landslide of those areas. You could debate over where you want to draw that line. But when you have large swaths of contiguous areas that are like Idaho, like Montana, like Wyoming, to be governed by Seattle makes no sense. You know, it, it makes sense. Like, okay, you cut off, you have the... the western third of the state even though even there there are some better rural counties like look you got to bite the bullet you have to have majoritarian rule at some point i get that but you can't have it this dark you know what's funny even in california that's the ultimate liberal mecca even california where gavin newsom defeated his little known republican by 18 points Little-known Republican, no money, no I, no one even knows who he is. Do you know that he still lost 32 counties and 126? <laughs> Fun fact, even in California, and again, there's a number of them that were close that with a functional party, meaning if you would subdivide the state and therefore be competitive and even win, the other counties would flip with them. But even under the current thing, no money, no help, no anything— Gavin Newsom's a juggernaut, wins 18 points statewide. They still lost, he still lost more counties than he won. Lost 32-126. Meaning the point is, and, and it's basically the whole interior. It's west and east. The coast is all liberal, and then interior, especially north, and that's the whole thing. The greater Idaho would would the dream would be to cut off eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, the eastern two-thirds. And really have the southwest Oregon to get a port along with the northern cap of California wine country. And again, this is more achievable than you think. It's unachievable if you don't have anyone advocating for it. But it's not like this when you have the shoe on the other foot. Like when Republicans win. Contrast this to DeSantis. Okay, DeSantis did to Florida... Kind of what Newsom did. Newsom won by 18. DeSantis won Florida by 19.4. Yeah, 
yeah, fun fact, DeSantis won Florida by a greater margin than Newsom won, slightly greater, won California. But it's not a mirror image. You see, whereas Newsom lost entire swaths of California, DeSantis won 62 of the 67 counties of Florida. And even the five that he lost, he won a respectable 42% plus in four out of the five. The only one he was under 40, ironically, was actually a small rural county, Gadsden, because it's still it's one of those um, leftover uh, rural black counties. But, uh, you know, that's the thing. But you don't need to even come on to DeSantis's landslide win. Let's let's talk about a state like Nevada. Nevada is a perfect state to to game this out. So the Republican Lombardo won the governor's race very narrowly, and the Democrat Cortez Mastos, whatever her name is, defeated Laxalt, the Republican, by a small margin for Senate. So this is a very good kind of 50-50 state to look at. Well, look, you know, it's it's heartbreaking, you know, but it's winner take all, and look, this, this is how it is. But let me show you the difference between one and the other. You go to Lombardo, and again, we're finding when Democrats even win landslide victories, there's entire swaths that are against them. Supermajority of the people in entire landmasses, the majority of the landmass that are against it. But whereas when Republicans win even narrowly, it broadly reflects the state. So in other words, I forget how many counties there are in Nevada. Let's, uh, let's say there's like the 15 rural counties, 13 or so, whatever it is, something like that. He won like Saddam Hussein margins, Lombardo. And then in the two Democrat ones, Washu, which is Reno, he almost tied him there, almost tied the Democrat. And then even in Clark County with Vegas in it, very respectable, like 47% showing. Very respectable. So you can't say that like, oh, the Democrats are disenfranchised. No, because that was a very broad reflection of the state. One landslides everywhere else, kind of tied it in Reno, and then, you know, won the, a lot of the Vegas suburbs, and it's just Vegas itself. But even then, it wasn't like lopsided the other way. Whereas you go to Laxalt, who lost by a, a hair, really, it was the same story. Laxalt ran it up everywhere else, still pretty respectable in Clark County. The difference was in Washu, he did like two points worse than Lombardo, and that made the difference. But the point is, like, you have a whole swath of the state that's like, what the hell? They're completely disenfranchised. Why should they be governed by Vegas? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Democrats don't have this equivalent problem when they, when Republicans narrowly win. Because it does broadly reflect. You know, it broadly reflects the state. Whereas when Democrats win, often even landslides, it doesn't reflect. Let me, let me go on to um, Illinois. The Illinois governor's race, again, no, on nobody's radar. Solid blue state, no one's radar. Um, no one ever heard of Darren Bailey outside of uh, Illinois. He's the Republican nominee. 
J.B. Uh, Pritzker, who's the incumbent Democrat, won re-election 54.6, 42.6. So a nice, healthy 12-point margin. But again, again, if you remove Cook County from the equation and leave all the collar counties surrounding that still voted Democrat, every other Democrat county, Pritzker's 483,000 margin of victory becomes a 200,000 net margin of victory for Bailey the Republican. Again, this doesn't negate his win, but it demonstrates just how unfair it is for Democrats to control large swaths of land so far away from the population centers with so much contiguous supermajority opposition downstate in Illinois. You know, when Republicans win by a few points, much less by double digits, on the other hand, their base of support is so much broader and more uniform. And indeed, on November 3rd, on November 8th, three more Illinois counties passed a non-binding referendum requesting negotiations to separate from the state. It brings it up to 27 counties. And that's something that needs to be revisited. The referendum was, shall the board of your county correspond with the boards of the other counties of Illinois outside of Cook County about the possibility of separating from Cook County to form a new state? So there they were trying to form a new state. There have been kind of broad discussions with maybe Kentucky, Missouri. But if we would have this in several areas, Nevada, Oregon, Illinois, Panhandle of Maryland, and, and, and you could think of other things where it makes sense. You know, you have a different different state of being. Again, think about New York. New York is a beautiful example of this. While Lee Zeldin did overperform, it wasn't razor thin. I mean, Kathy Hochul still defeated him by a healthy six-point margin. But even with a healthy six-point margin, she lost 49 out of 62 counties. But it's even worse than that. Because anyone who understands New York really knows that New York City and New York State are literally two separate entities. New York City is down there in the southeast corner off on an island, and then you have the rest of the state. It makes no sense. I did the math. If you would separate everything north of Westchester County from the New York City metro area. So in other words, you would take New York City plus Westchester County, that's one county north, that's where all the cartel rich people who work in Manhattan live, you know, because they don't want to live in the city that they created and made it something that rhymes with city. Um, so they live in Westchester County. If you take everything north of that, Rockland up north, um, and by the way, that includes giving the Democrats Staten Island, Long Island, where Lee Zeldin did very well within the city, Hochul's 327,000 margin of victory becomes a 158,000 loss. In other words, Zeldin carried upstate New York by several points. And, and here's the important thing. Meaning, when we say Lee Zeldin carried upstate New York, upstate New York is not the equivalent of Eastern Oregon. You have some counties that are rural and kind of like that, but that includes the whole Albany, Rochester, College Towns, Buffalo, you know, um, 
Syracuse, all these big, big urban areas. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? It's not like you even have, you know, like Portland and then like Idaho, which is what Eastern Oregon is. You have a lot of urban areas, but I'm saying even with all of that, Zeldin would have won the state. These are things we need to start agitating for. Maybe you get a middle ground, but I'm saying you can't do it from a position of weakness. You need all of your elected officials, all of your outside officials saying, we, it is unfair. We're not seeking to govern you. You don't govern us. Maybe you don't formally get let go or join another state, but by doing that, you force a resolution where you have a degree of autonomy, where certain things, COVID mandates, gun control, certain things don't fly here. Which states do that all the time. Like, technically, like, Pennsylvania does have stricter gun control for Philadelphia than the rest of the state. But it needs to be, you know, you need to get much broader than that. So, again, these states, Oregon, Illinois, and New York, are considered solid blue states. And yet, still, there is so much contiguous, large landmass that is very distant from the urban centers, controlling states, and yet have super majorities voting against those seas of blue that irrevocably tipped the state towards communism. So you can imagine how much stronger the case is with purple states like Pennsylvania and Nevada. Makes no sense for them to be governed by you know, Pittsburgh and Philly in the case of, um, of Pennsylvania and um, Vegas in, in, in Nevada. You know what's funny? Even San Bernardino County, not one of the northern wine countries. I don't know if you guys saw this. They actually had a, had a vote, a non-binding vote to secede from California. And it narrowly, by like a three, four point margin, did pass. San Bernardino actually voted for Biden by an 11 point margin. Now, I will say, historically, it was more lean Republican. That was part of the kind of the collapse, exaggerated phenomenon where the, just the GOP collapsed in the state. So it's, you know, but but it's not a solid red county. San Bernardino is a big county, has a lot of urban areas too. Um, and they actually voted to secede from California. So that's my point. We're, we're so disenfranchised. We need to start bringing this point up. And that will help lift the tide of the red state national divorce. This is the point we need to start making. Now, yeah, the blue politicians are going to, you know, they, they want the area for their purposes. But I'm just telling you, you start pushing back enough, you'll get a lot of these urbanites say, look, screw them. I don't need those rednecks. I mean, I'm just using their language. Um, and, and that's what we need. Again, this is not an end-all strategy. A lot of the points of making this is not so much that you'll ever necessarily get there in that specific way, but it's to broadly, broadly push your prerogatives. But that takes a movement that will focus on its interests, not their positions. Dogmatic focus on this part of the Constitution and this issue we focus on and this strategy and certainly vote Republican and uh, but the Democrats, but the Democrats. Now, it's not like I'm going to stop everything I'm doing and only focus on this. No. This is the second show I'm doing on, on this. But it's one of many strategies. And the more strategies we do concurrently, the more it will open up more 
ideas and avenues and it will become self-fulfilling. You know, like, yeah, I mean, these areas are untouchable. Just like the way we view San Francisco. Like, dude, hey, you do what you want. We're, we're never going to control you. You have that lock, stock, and barrel. It will start happening the other way. We need to make ourselves ungovernable. At least starting in the areas where super majorities vote against this stuff or think they're voting against it by voting Republican, even though they're not. That's the key. We need new leadership. We need new initiative, new ideas. That's what I promise I'm going to bring to the table, but I need you to be a partner with me. We're going we're gonna to kind of build these Liberty Strike Force teams to focus on the state legislative sessions, among other things, and ideas and movements like this in each state. I need state leaders. But also, to send this show to every one of your friends and relatives, we need to red pill our own voters. What I'm trying to tell you is even without changing the heart and mind of one single swing voter, if only the people that broadly agree with us and don't like what the Democrats are doing were under, made to understand that the Republicans are irremediably broken, we need to think new ideas, new strategies, red pill our areas, it would make a lot of this moot because we would have a significant swath of land to go to where we could live somewhat in freedom. Anything short of that goal. I don't care how you get there. I'm open to better ideas, and I'm sure there are. But anything short of that is fraud and a waste of your time and is nothing but grifting and all these people just earning shocking amounts of money off of your listenership. That's what it is. I don't, I don't know why they still have audiences the way they had. Some of it, it's kind of just built in from years ago. But they're literally subversive. We need new leaders. Without leadership, we can't do anything. With leadership, the sky's the limit. God willing. Well, folks, we had a great, terrific week as always. You can email me, danielherowitz at startmail.com. Let me know your ideas on this and other things. Until next week, hope you guys have a terrific weekend with family and faith. God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.